This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, December 21st, 2016, episode 35, concerning some astronomical anomalies and meteorological marvels. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today is the winter solstice, the longest night of the year. Well, in the northern hemisphere. As we learned in middle school science, uh, this happens because the axis on which the Earth rotates is tilted in relation to the sun, by 23.5 degrees in fact, and the axis itself does not rotate as the Earth revolves around the sun, or at least it's stable enough on a human timescale. Anyway, as the direction of the axis in relation to the sun changes, the northern and southern hemispheres get different ratios of visibility of the sun. On the ground, this is reflected in how high above the horizon the sun rises each day. At the summer solstice, the sun reaches its highest point in the sky, and you get the longest day. And at the winter solstice, it rises the least, and thus the shortest day. This motion, as observed by ancient astronomers, also gives us the word solstice, which English took from Latin sol, the sun, plus sistere, to stand still or stop, because it's the moment when the sun stops in its upward or downward progression and reverses course. Of course, as a major and predictable celestial event, the solstice was granted great significance. It attracted religious celebrations, and there's a good reason why so many winter festivals in different cultures tend to settle in the vicinity of the 21st of December. But rather than taking a deep dive into midwinter holidays this year, I thought we'd use the occasion of the solstice to look at some medieval sky-watching. So this episode will be a little stocking, stuffed with bibs and bobs of mostly celestial portents, but with weird weather and earthquakes and pestilence and other things thrown in for good measure. But all these things are related, of course. Celestial events were accorded great significance as portents or omens of events to come, usually bad events. Comets, meteors, and aurorae in particular were interpreted as signs of impending disaster. And our word disaster comes from disastrum, a bad star. Though, in this case, that's more about bad zodiac mojo than a bad omen like a comet or meteor. But there's still the stellar connection. As for comets, everyone's favorite snowballs, Isidore of Seville gives us one good definition of comet in his etymologies. He writes, A comet, cometa, is a star, so named because it spreads out the hair, or coma, of its light. When this type of star appears, it signifies plague, famine, or war. Comets are called crinitae in Latin because they spread their flames like hair, crinis. The Stoics say that there are more than 30 comets whose names and effects certain astrologers have written about. Comets receive a lot of attention because they're relatively obvious and easy to observe. They're visible for several days and they can be seen from far and wide. More ephemeral but dramatic are meteors and meteor showers and occasionally even meteorite impacts. One of the great things about medieval meteors is all of the different names for them that occur in the Latin sources, though it's not always clear whether these terms are describing actual meteors or meteor showers, or if they apply to comets or aurorae. Uh, but here's just a small sampling to give you a sense of the range of metaphors used, um, which I've extracted from a fun 1978 article by Umberto Dall'Olmo called Meteors, Meteor Showers, and Meteorites in the Middle Ages, from European Medieval Sources. We start with variations on our own most common metaphor, the falling or shooting star. So you have 
Stellarum discursus, moving stars, or Stellae micantes, fighting stars, Stellae cadentes, falling stars, Stella pluera, stars rained down, and Stella longa, an elongated star. Then you have fire images, Globus magnus ignis, a big ball of fire, Ictus igne, jets of fire, Spicula ignea, fiery lance points, Igniculi simile stellus, small star-like fires, Faculas volitantis, torches flying. And then we have a more fantastical set, Ferris magna, big beacon, Nonnoli angli volitantis, several angels flying, and Signum draco magno scilicit, a sign, namely a great dragon. This last example touches on a bit of an open question in discussions of medieval sky-watching. You see references in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and other histories to people seeing dragons flying through the sky. These are sometimes cited as examples of how medieval people, even learned historians, believed in the reality of monsters, believed in dragons as things out there in the natural world. But there is an alternative interpretation, which is that a dragon is just a name for a meteor a big flaming streak across the sky. And when people said they saw dragons, it was understood to be a metaphor, just like when we say falling star. We don't actually believe it's a star falling to Earth. Well, most of us don't, I hope. But that kind of gets to the rub. On the one hand, it's very compelling for someone who wants to rehabilitate medieval people from the stereotype of the superstitious rube to say that dragons are simply a label for meteors. But on the other hand, it isn't that hard to imagine that plenty of medieval people would have seen a fireball streaking across the sky as quite possibly being something produced by an otherwise unseen creature that perhaps breathes fire. So the degree to which dragons in the sky were thought to be real creatures or were just poetic language to describe admittedly mysterious phenomena is largely impossible to nail down. And to complicate it further, I just read a rather convincing article from this year by Marilena Cesario. Um, you can check our website for bibliographic references, in which she argues that the famous Firin Drakan, or fiery dragons that are seen presaging the sack of Lindisfarne in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, are not meteors or comets, as many have argued, but are instead a description of an aurora borealis, not unlike the bloody cloud that dogged Ethelred II's first year as king back in episode 25. So who knows? Probably every theory is true for at least one text or another. It seems that's the way these things often go. The other major astronomical events frequently noted in the histories were eclipses of the sun and moon. Even though other ancient cultures, like the Mayans and the Chinese, had worked out tables for predicting solar eclipses, Europe didn't really get there until the early modern period, so these remained quite startling, even though medieval scholars actually had a pretty clear idea of what an eclipse was and how the mechanics worked of the moon passing between the sun and the earth or the earth between the sun and the moon, albeit using a geocentric rather than a heliocentric model. Celestial omens are relevant to the Christmas season also for one particularly famous astronomical observation as recorded in the Gospel according to Matthew. Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to adore him. A vision of a star in the east, or as the Vulgate has it, Widimus enum stellam eos in oriente. Or in the Greek, Edomen garautu ton astera in toi anatole. The star of Bethlehem has often been interpreted as a comet, 
which links up nicely with the prevailing belief that comets are associated with kings, uh, assuming it was a real phenomenon, of course, and not just a narrative invention. Uh, though in this case, it has a positive quality, which we seldom see in the medieval discussions of comets. But this gives us a fitting segue into our first text, since it starts with the birth of Christ. Though, despite being obsessed with signs in the sky in every other part of the text, it does not mention the Star of Bethlehem. This text is the rather short Chronicle of Holyrood. This chronicle is, along with the much larger Melrose Chronicle, one of our sources for Scottish history in the mid-12th century, providing a different angle on some of the same events covered by Simeon of Durham from an English perspective. It's an annal with numbered entries for individual years, and it starts, as I said, with the birth of Christ, and then runs to the year 734, largely summarizing material culled from the Venerable Bede. Uh, it also does not provide entries for every year in that span by any means. Uh, but then you hit a particularly big gap after 734, uh, a gap of about three centuries, and the annal picks up again with the year 1065, where it starts recording more novel Scottish history up to the year 1163. Which is fascinating, but our selections all come from the first part, which is not as detailed uh, and mainly consists of quite brief notices of major events for the selected years. But one of the striking things about the information the chronicler chose to record is how much of it is astronomical. He's clearly very interested in signs in the sky, and quite a few of the individual annals are nothing but descriptions of eclipses or comets. So we'll hear several of those, as well as excerpted bits from longer entries, where we'll just focus on the more portentous parts. All of our texts for today come from translations by Joseph Stevenson in his massive and incredibly useful set of volumes, The Church Historians of England. And so let's start with a catalog of marvels from the Chronicle of Holyrood, starting with the very first entry in the Chronicle. In the year 752 from the foundation of Rome, Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the 42nd year of the Emperor Octavian Augustus. In the 193rd year of the Olympiad, peace was proclaimed to the world upon the advent of him who is the true peace. At this time in Rome, on the further side of the Tiber at the Taberna Meritoria, a fountain of oil welled out of the ground and flowed with an abundant stream during the entire day thereby intimating the grace of Christ to the Gentiles. At that time also, a circle resembling the rainbow appeared around the sun. Octavian, the emperor, reigned for 56 years. Anno Domini 538. There was an eclipse of the sun upon the 14th of the Calends of January, from the first until the third hour. Anno Domini 540. The sun was once more eclipsed on the 12th of the Calends of July from the third hour of the day until nearly the sixth, and for half an hour the stars were visible. Anno Domini 664 There was an eclipse of the sun on the second of May, about the tenth hour of the day. Also in this year there broke out a sudden pestilence, which first devastated the southern districts of Britain, and then laid hold upon the province of the Northumbrians, which it ravaged far and wide for a considerable time with great fierceness 
and killed a large number of the inhabitants. This plague was equally destructive in the island of Ireland. Anno Domini 729 Two comets appeared near the sun, which struck great terror into the spectators. One of them went before the sun at his rising, and the other followed him at his setting, presaging, as it were, fearful slaughter to both east and west. Or it may be understood thus. One preceded the commencement of the day, the other that of the night, intimating that ills were impending by both day and night over the human race. The flame extended towards the north as if it were about to set that region of the heavens on fire. They appeared in the month of January and continued visible for nearly two weeks. At this time, the Saracens, a fearful pest, devastated Gaul with a miserable slaughter, but not long after, they were deservedly punished for their treachery in the same province. Anno Domini 733 An eclipse of the sun occurred on the 18th of the Calends of September, about the third hour of the day, to such an extent that nearly the whole surface of the sun appeared to be covered like as with a black and horrible shield. Anno Domini 734 the moon was covered with a color like blood for nearly a whole hour at cock-crowing upon the 2nd of the Calends of February, and after a darkness had succeeded, she regained her usual brightness. In the same year, Archbishop Tatwin and Bede the Doctor ascended to the heavenly mansions. So there you have a sampling of how astronomical observations typically appear in chronicles and annals, especially older ones, or ones derived from older sources. Our next two items have a bit more narrative to them. The first is a passage from the History of the Church of Hexham, written by John the Prior in the 1150s, another rather short work covering only 25 years of history. But it includes a nice tale of a comet that presaged a whole range of disasters and ill fortune. This event is recorded for the year 1133. On the 8th of the Ides of October, 1133, a comet was visible for about seven days. The greatest part of the city of London was destroyed by fire on the Wednesday in Whitsun Week, in the 33rd year of the reign of Henry, King of the English. On the very day of the anniversary of the death of this Henry's brother and predecessor, William, named Rufus, and of Henry's accession to the throne, being the fourth of the Knowns of August, there occurred a spectacle of this sort. When the aforesaid King Henry was staying on the coast with the intention of crossing over, and the wind was frequently favorable for the passage, at length, about noon on the day aforesaid, the king had gone to the sea to cross, attended in royal manner by his escort of soldiers. There suddenly appeared in the air a cloud, which, however, was not seen to the same extent through all England, for in some places the day seemed rather dark, but in others the obscurity was such that under its cover men needed the light of a candle to transact business. The king, in consequence, and the royal company who were going about, and very many others, in astonishment raising their eyes to the sky, saw the sun shining like a new moon, which yet did not long remain in the same mood, for it sometimes seemed broader, sometimes thinner, at one time curved, at another straight, now steady as usual, now in motion, stirring and liquid like quicksilver. 
Some assert that an eclipse of the sun took place. If this be true, the sun was then in the head of the dragon and the moon in the tail, or the sun in the tail and the moon in the head in the fifth sign, that is, Leo, in the seventeenth degree of that sign. The moon was then twenty-seven days old. Likewise, on the same day, when the ships ready for the passage of the said king were firmly at anchor at the shore, the sea being very calm and the wind continuing moderate, the great anchors of one ship were torn from their moorings, as if by some sudden violence, and the ship, to the astonishment of many who strove, but were not able, to hold it, being put in motion, moved also the vessel next to it, and so the eight vessels were stirred by an unknown power, and none of them remained uninjured. Many also said that on the same day and about the same hour, they saw many churches in the province of York bedewed, as it were, with a great sweat. All these things took place, as has been said, on Wednesday the 4th of the Knowns of August. On the sixth day of the same week, namely the first of the Knowns of the same month, early in the morning there was a great earthquake in many parts of England. There were also some who said that on the Monday of the following week, namely the sixth of the Ides of the same month, when the moon was three days old, they saw her at first, as is usual, at that age, but in a short period in the evening of the same day they saw her large, in the shape of a round and very glittering shield. Many also said that on the same night they saw two moons, one distant about a spear's length from the other. King Henry crossed the sea from England into Normandy, from which he did not return home alive. Oh, alas, King Henry. Of course, he dies about two years after this departure from England, so that rather stretches the influence of a comet. But our chronicler is using it and all the other odd Fordian phenomena to perform some serious foreshadowing. All right, for our final portfolio of portents, we must turn to the Melrose Chronicle, which we've heard from several times before, but most recently for its account of the deaths of the kings Edgar and Edward, and of the bloody aurora-like cloud that followed those deaths back in the aforementioned episode 25. I'll start with just an assortment of short items collected from lots of different places in the text and touching on a lot of different remarkable events alongside astronomical ones, including another rather briefly noted instance of the blood libel. And then we'll conclude with a more fleshed-out narrative, one that receives special attention in the Chronicle. This is an account of a strange moon that was witnessed by a monk of Glenluce Abbey and was reported in a letter to the convent at Melrose, soliciting their expert interpretations of it. And our chronicler embeds the text of the letter into the chronicle. And I'll have more to say about it after we hear it. So, once again, this is Stevenson's translation of the Melrose Chronicle. From the Melrose Chronicles entry for the year 1048. There was a great earthquake on the Calends of May at Worcester, Wick, Derby, and many other places. A great mortality of men and cattle followed, and fire in the air, commonly called wood fire in certain places, consumed many towns and much corn. Anno Domini 1117. In Italy, there was a great earthquake, which continued for forty days by which many buildings were overthrown, and one town of considerable size was removed from its site. The moon appeared to be changed into blood. 
Anno Domini 1165. Richard, the chaplain of King Malcolm, was consecrated at St. Andrews in Scotland by the bishops of that realm upon Palm Sunday, which this year fell upon the 5th of the Calends of April. And Henry, King of England, passed the sea, and after his return he marched into Wales with a great army, where he slew many people, and executed justice upon the two sons of King Rhys, and upon the sons and daughters of his nobles. He put out the eyes of the boys, and cut off the ears and noses of the girls. In the month of August, two comets appeared before sunrise, one in the south and the other in the north. A comet is a star which is not always visible, but which appears most frequently upon the death of a king, or on the destruction of a kingdom. When it appears with a crown of shining rays, it portends the decease of a king. But if it has streaming hair, and throws it off, as it were, then it betokens the ruin of the country. There was a great tempest in the province of York during that same month. Many people saw the old enemy taking the lead in that tempest. He was in the form of a black horse of large size, and always kept hurrying towards the sea, while he was followed by thunder and lightning and fearful noises and a destructive hail. The footprints of this accursed horse were of a very enormous size, especially on the hill near the sound of Scardbirch, from which he gave a leap into the sea. And here, for a whole year afterwards, they were plainly visible, the impression of each foot being deeply graven in the earth. The same tempest destroyed a mill on the river Severn with its inhabitants, with the exception of a single monk, who, by God's mercy, was saved from the fire. But as a token that God makes a difference among men, to give hope to unwavering consolation, and chiefly for the praise of the Omnipotent, this monk and his property escaped uninjured. From the entry for the year 1181. In many localities throughout England there were great storms of thunder and lightning, and tempests of wind and floods of waters. There were done many and great miracles at St. Edmund's by the blessed youth Robert, whom a Jew had cruelly put to death in secrecy. The like extraordinary occurrences happened at Huntingdon in regard to another boy named Herbert, whom his own father had cruelly bound to a stake and miserably drowned in the river which runs near the town. A comet appeared in the month of July. Anno Domini 1205. Earl David performed his homage to his nephew Alexander, the son of King William. Two moons appeared in the sky at the same time. Both of them were of the same size. Their horns touched each other at one extremity, but they were widely apart at the other. At last, however, they coalesced. A frost, severe and terrible and of long continuance, everywhere destroyed the sheep and oxen and horses which were in the woods. In the western part of Scotland, which is called Galloway, there appeared a change in the form of the moon, marvelous beyond belief, and such as our age had not hitherto witnessed. William, abbot of Glenluce, a man worthy of all credit and a monk of holy conversation, sent an account of it in writing to the Lord Prior and the Holy Convent of Melrose. And afterwards, when he visited Melrose, he gave a detailed narrative of what had happened, corresponding in every respect with his previously written communication. I was present among the other auditors, and made the request, and heard and wondered at his narrative. His letter was to this effect. To those venerable persons in Christ, our Lord A., the prior of Melrose, and to the convent of the same place, Brother William, the unworthy minister of the poor in Christ who are at Glenluce, wishes eternal health in the Lord. As it is impossible that he who is the truth should be deceived, 
So in like manner, it is all the more certain that what his mouth has predicted is in part fulfilled already, and that what still remains to be accomplished shall of a surety come to pass. For the lips of the truth have declared that there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, etc. Since, then, nothing which occurs upon the globe happens without a cause, it is clear that the greater they are, the greater is the cause in which they originate. I have taken care, therefore, with all the brevity which I can employ, to transmit to you, holy brethren, an account of a great wonder, or rather, of many and great wonders, which appeared of late in the parts of Galloway. Nor should I have ventured to have communicated this account to men so great and so venerable were it not that I have the most conclusive evidence of what I narrate, the evidence of those very persons who saw these wonders with their own eyes, and gave a truthful and detailed account of them with their own lips in my presence and in the presence of many others. It happened then that a certain convert of our order, a man sober, sedate, pure-minded, and of approved religion, was on a journey towards the dusk of the evening upon the day of St. Ambrose the bishop the day after Palm Sunday, being the day before the Nones of April, when the moon was thirteen days old. And lo, as this convert was looking at the moon, which was at this time full and round, at that very time he saw, as it were, a black and dusky rope cutting the moon into two halves. The blackness of this rope diffused itself over that half of the moon which was towards the north, and made it become darker and duskier than the other part, whereupon, in the twinkling of an eye, that half which had lost its color appeared to cut itself off and separate from the other portion from which it had become detached about the eighth part of a mile, and so great was the violence with which that paler half of the moon was separated and plucked asunder from the other that it emitted sparks like a dragon when it is flying through the sky. Some little delay now occurred, after which that paler part of the moon gradually and slowly advanced nearer and nearer to the other half at one time drawing itself back, as if in fear, and again driven onwards, as if by constraint. Just, however, as these two parts of the moon were about to coalesce, a cloud intervened which shrouded both of them, and the vision disappeared. A gust of wind, however, swept the cloud aside, and the moon once more emerged from under it, and now it appeared to have increased to the bulk of three moons. Immediately this increase in its bulk expanded itself over the whole heavens, and then assumed the form of a beautiful castle, the walls of which were amply provided with towers and battlements. At this sight, so unusual and so astounding, not only the convert but his servant also began to fear and tremble, and this latter said to the former, Master, what is the meaning of all this? Has the day of judgment arrived, think you? The other answered, Not so, my son, but these things are the wonders of the Almighty God, who according to his pleasure works signs and prodigies and miracles. The servant remarked, I have frequently been told that these changes in the moon's shape are produced by witches and magicians and women who are enchantresses. The other replied, It is not so, my son. We ought rather to believe that these things portend something wonderful and fearful, which is about to befall the race of mankind. But now the moon had put off the shape of a castle and assumed that of a very large and beautiful ship, on board of which there appeared only one figure, a very tall man who seemed to be the sailor. The ship hoisted and spread abroad her sail, and so sailed away with the greatest rapidity towards Ireland, taking the direction of the Isle of Man. Next the moon put off the form of a ship, and resumed that of a large castle, fearful to look upon, 
and on this occasion there was displayed in the castle a royal standard, such as is borne in the army of the king when he goes forth to battle. And, what is more extraordinary still, the pendants, or little streamers, which hang down from the ends of the banners, in this which now appeared, seemed to move and flutter as if by a breath of wind. Some little time afterwards, the whole fabric of the castle vanished, and the moon resumed her natural form and pursued her wanted course. Presently, however, a little dusky tower, provided with turrets of the smallest size, appeared upon the moon for a very brief space of time, and then disappeared. The moon appeared to have suffered some damage from these frequent annoyances and violent and sudden changes. She was troubled and saddened and distressed, and continued pale and discolored. At length, however, she recovered her former hue and became herself again. It is for you, then, holy men, to decide whether such an unusual appearance as this is, whether such a fearful portent, such an astounding miracle, ought to be passed over in silence. And if he who created not only the moon, but the whole fabric of the universe, did not spare the exceeding beauty of the moon, which is a type of the elements of the firmament, and in herself represents the hidden meaning of the earth and the sea, but suffered the moon herself to be dishonored by undergoing a transformation so great and so fearful as a warning to the whole human race, what shall be the fate of those persons for whose sakes these tokens were foreshown, if they refuse to return from the way of perdition in which they are walking, disregarding alike the fear of God, the dread of hell, and every other consideration? Now that is a sign in the sky. Before I say more about the monk of Glenluce's moon, I have one last little thing to share, a passage from Gervais of Canterbury that has received a lot of attention from modern astronomers. Gervais describes a site seen by a group of five monks in 1178. He writes, This year on the 18th of June, when the moon, a slim crescent, first became visible, a marvelous phenomenon was seen by several men who were watching it. Suddenly the upper horn of the crescent was split in two, from the midpoint of the division, a flaming torch sprang up, spewing out over a considerable distance fire, hot coals, and sparks. The body of the moon, which was below, writhed like a wounded snake. This happened a dozen times or more, and when the moon returned to normal, the whole crescent took on a blackish appearance. In 1976, geologist Jack B. Hartung proposed that this is a description of a particularly large lunar impact or a meteor or comet striking the moon, which clearly happens, just look at all the craters, though no truly large impact has been witnessed in modern history. However, recent re-examinations of this theory have largely concluded that it's highly unlikely, for a few technical reasons, uh, and also because it would be very odd for such a major event to go unrecorded anywhere else. So the alternative explanation is that these monks just happened to be at the right position to see a meteor burning up so that from their viewing angle, it appeared to emerge from or cross over the moon. It's very tempting to imagine something similar is occurring with the vision of the monk of Glenluce. In fact, if anything, I think the opening third or so of this account sounds even more like a major impact sending up a cloud of ejecta, uh, though it also suffers from the fatal flaw of not being recorded anywhere else. Others have seen this account as, at heart, 
one of a lunar eclipse, though the precise dates provided in the Chronicle don't match up with when an eclipse should have been visible. But precision in dating is not always a medieval strong suit. So perhaps we have another happy coincidence of an eclipse in a fortuitously placed meteor trail, a fiery dragon again, and voila, you've got a scientific explanation for, well, the opening section of this vision. That opening gives us a tantalizing taste of plausibly naturalistic description of some unusual but believable astronomical phenomenon. But then the moon turns into a castle and a ship, and I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. Is it a report of a natural phenomenon that's been embellished with fantasy or a metaphor that's been grossly overextended? Or should we just abandon any expectation of realism and just take this as we would any other of the countless miraculous visions or even dream visions that are in the literature. Tempting though it may be, trying to fit this account into a realistic representation by stripping away the actual description in it reminds me of those who take Ezekiel's vision of the wheel and try to show how all of its baffling elements are just a primitive person's mind attempting to describe the technological features of a real UFO. You have to be over-invested in one narrow set of assumptions, discarding so much else to make the interpretation work, that it just doesn't seem to pass muster. I think sometimes we have to resist the urge to play Sherlock Holmes and deduce all sorts of hidden truths from little surface details in order to uncover the underlying true reality in texts like this. Sometimes it's better just to enjoy the surface, cratered though it may be. We're not done with astronomical phenomena for this show by any means. There are lots of other interesting accounts and beliefs and good science mixed with really terrible science and all sorts of stuff, but those will have to wait for future episodes. It's the shortest day of the year, and we must away. So we did have a mystery word from last episode. That word was hingakbörther. This is an Old Norse word, which has two elements, the adverb hingat, which means hither, and the noun birther, which means a couple of things. It's linked to a root for carrying or bearing things, so it can mean one's carriage, as in how one holds one's limbs, or one's bearing. But it also means birth, which you can hear in birther, sharing a common Germanic root. So hingatbörther means a hither-coming birth, or perhaps a being carried hither. Or, more specifically, it's a term for the birth of Christ. It's not a common word, uh, and its most frequently cited occurrence in the Old Norse corpus is in the Marius Saga, a 13th century biographical legend of the Virgin Mary. So semantically, it's similar to Advent, from the Latin for arrival, but it has the advantage of building in the specific notion of nativity. And so that wraps up our solstice-slash-yule-slash-Christmas episode for the year. The riddle and mystery word are going to go on vacation for the holiday, uh, along with the show. We'll be back in the new year, probably late January, with a new episode and a brand new riddle. You can get more info about the show, including references for the text mentioned in this and every episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can send me email there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at MDTPodcast. Uh, my New Year's resolution will be to try to be a little more active on Twitter, uh, but we'll see how that goes. If you're looking for a last-minute gift for the history buff in your life or need something you can drop on your own wish list for last-minute gift buyers, have you thought about Wisconsin Death Trip, Michael Lessie's amazing book from which this podcast has brazenly but respectfully cribbed its title? 
You can find it on Amazon, and I don't get any kickbacks or anything for plugging it. This is a pure fan recommendation. If you want to hear a few snippets from it, though, check out this podcast's prologue, episode zero. All right, happy holidays, happy new year, and safe travels to all you pilgrims of whatever rank, creed, or estate. See you again in 2017, and thanks for listening. <laughs>